So, again, lots of stuff going on tonight. We're going to jump in and we're going to worship God through song. This first song is going to remind us of who God is, what He's done for us, and that this is the God that loves us and that has redeemed us. And because when we see who He is, then we become overwhelmed because He's wonderful and He's precious to us. So I invite you, if you're able to, let's stand together and let's worship our great God.
Let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. Before the cross, beat the grave. Let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. I see the work of your hands. Galaxies spin in a heavenly dance, oh God. All that you are is so overwhelming. I hear the sounds of your voice. All at once it's a gentle and thundering noise, oh God. All that you are is so overwhelming. Your arms. 
overwhelmed by our God. And it reminds us of who we used to be, and yet now who God has made us to be. Out of the wilderness and to your deliverance, Lord, look where I'm standing now. These hands that once were chained, now lifted high in praise. Look where I'm standing now. I stand on the chain, breaking, miracle-making, powerful name of Jesus. Declare it this evening. Out of the wilderness, into your deliverance, look where I'm standing now. These hands that were once were chained, now lifted high in praise, look where I'm standing now. Look where I'm standing now. I stand on the chain-breaking, miracle-making, powerful name of Jesus. On the body-raising, prodigal-saving, powerful name of Jesus. Let by your mighty into the promised land look where i'm standing now you carried the cross for me now i am a child of the king look where i'm standing now look where i'm standing now i stand on the chain breaking Miracle-making, powerful name of Jesus. On the body-raising, prodigal-saving, powerful name of Jesus. Hallelujah, I'm free. Hallelujah, I'm free. Jesus, my Savior, rescued me. Hallelujah, I'm free. Hallelujah, I'm free. Jesus, my Savior, rescued me. Hallelujah, I'm free. Hallelujah, I'm free. Jesus, my Savior, rescued me. Hallelujah, I'm free. Hallelujah, I'm free. Jesus, my Savior, rescued me. Hallelujah, I'm free. I stand on the chain-breaking, miracle-making,
Hallelujah, I'm free. Jesus, my Savior, rescued me. Hallelujah, I'm free. Hallelujah, I'm free. Jesus, my Savior, rescued me. Hallelujah, I'm free.
Open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to take a look at this next section in Timothy. It's a smaller section that we're going to tackle tonight, but there's a lot of information. Prior to that, though, I do want to stop and pause and and give an update, one, on our uh, trip to Israel that is planned for next March. As of right now, we are still planning on going. Uh, we're trusting in God for what he's going to do. I do want to pray for Israel and, and uh, the peace of Jerusalem especially, but for the land. I've been in contact with our tour guide that took us out five years ago. Um, and I've been posting on my Facebook page his updates that are there and, and with the tour company. And I really believe that, um, that this war that they're doing right now is going to be very short-lived. Um, and with that, so we're kind of holding the, the trip as a, as a go and until the Lord is definitely telling us not to go. Uh, right now, the tour company is working with people that are there, and it, it's interesting because some of the people are still touring all the sites, which is an okay thing. But I think uh, 
the Lord's going to be in, in, in that place. But we do need to pray. We are, we are approaching the end times uh, like never before. The, this, the battles and the things that are going on, all the players are getting into place. So we'll either go to, go to Israel next March or we won't or the Lord will take us home, which is okay either way. So I'm good. But let's pray for Israel and let's pray for, for the peace of Jerusalem even now. Father, I thank you that we can partner with your people that are called by your name. You command us to, to pray blessings over Israel and your people. And Lord, we know that uh, you are sovereign over all of this. And I pray for the government. I pray for the, the 360,000 that have been called up that are fighting. Lord, we pray for those that have suffered great loss, that you would comfort them. Lord, I lift up our friends, David Tall and Moshe Nov and Sammy. Lord, that uh, as, as they play their parts uh, within the Christian community, getting the word out, Lord, we would ask that you would keep them safe. Father, we, uh, we pray that you would bring peace. And we know that peace will only come when you, Lord Jesus, the peacemaker, comes. The Prince of Peace. So, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Till then, may we be faithful in doing what you've called us to do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a, a, a look tonight at 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 13. You're going, well, wait a minute. That, that's only 13 verses. Oh, no, there's a lot there. We're also going to take a little um, side trip in, in the passages. Now, chapter 3 is a continued conversation from Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy, as he's writing to him, to young Timothy, who is there in Ephesus, and he's addressing a lot of the, the disruptions and the issues that were going on. He's already addressed uh, Timothy having to deal with the false teachers that were rising up from without and from within. Some of the distractions that were going on amongst the, the men that were praying and the women that were coming in dressed in visual distractions and some of those things. And now it's time to turn to the leaders of the church. This is the time of the year as our church, as we start taking, we put it out for elders and for deacons, for people in anticipation for ministry for next year. And if you wonder if you qualify as an elder or a deacon, tonight you're going to learn. Because we're going to walk through the, these qualifications of elders and, and deacons because Paul is setting up for Timothy how to set up good biblical eldership in Ephesus because somewhere along the line they lost track of what they need to be doing. I think about 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4 through 4, where Peter would write, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witnesses of the suffering of Christ and partakers also of the glory that is to be revealed. Here's the exhortation. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over the, those allotted to your charge, but proving to be, note, examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Biblical leadership is a very high calling. It's a high calling based on the standards that are there, but within that, everybody... It's, it's a high calling that everybody um, can achieve, whether in the deacon position or the elder position. 
as we're going to see this, it really is just a high standard and a high calling of living within that. Now, these qualifications are, are based off of character, not necessarily function. You're not an elder or a deacon just because somebody slaps a name on you. It, it, same thing as you're not a pastor just because somebody calls you a pastor. In any position of leadership, you're not really a leader just because you have the title. It, it really is about function. And how do you determine who is a good leader and a bad leader? Well, from a biblical standpoint, we're going to see that tonight. Who is a good leader or a good elder and a good deacon? The church is not a business. Paul did not send Timothy to go select CEOs. Elders are not CEOs. And elder boards are not trustees. At least from the biblical example and the biblical model that we see in this. When, when churches are turned into businesses and run by business models, they stop being an organism and they become an organization. And that's very, very scary. Because what happens is then the leadership will default to secular principles in running what should be the body of Christ and ministering to the body of Christ. Now, is there practical knowledge that can be used? Absolutely there is. But we should always keep in mind that the church is the body of Christ, a living organism. And as elders or deacons, we are to shepherd the flock that's among us, which means you have to be within that place. And Paul was pushing back against some of the cultural norms that had crept into the church. And if you remember when we talked last week about his, his address to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said, be careful because the wolves are going to come out from without and they're going to come out from within. Ephesus is, was, was a major metropolis and, and there were some things that were going on that needed to be corrected and so he needed to send young Timothy to go and to bring this correction. Now the office of the overseer is what's called an episkopos. And you've probably heard that and it's really a position of function. So when we see the word elder, it really is overseer that is in this. And all churches should be led by elders and by deacons. All churches biblically should be led by what's called a plurality of leadership within that. In other words, it's not a, it's not a top-down, one-guy dictatorship. It's not a monarchy. It's a plurality of leadership. So when we take a look at the biblical model of, of leadership, it's a plurality of leadership. And that's what we have here at our church at Warren Community, it's a plurality of leadership, and as lead pastor, I'm first among equals. In other words, I'm a member of the elder board and, and fulfilling that function, and then we also have deacons that are within that. I would say that, that as a church, we have named deacons and we have unnamed deacons, as we're going to see in a, in a bit. And we have those that are elders, and then we have those that, are, that operate in the functioning elder board, and then we have those that are not necessarily on the elder board, but they're still elders within the church. In fact, as we're going to see at the end, every person in the body of Christ should function either as elder or deacon. That's your role. You're going to see, though, how do you get to that level, because there is one level below that, and that is what we would call a neophyte or a new convert, and that's one that is, that is growing, that is in that place of 
learning about where they're at. Now, Paul's going to give a huge list of qualities of leadership. And he's going to do this so that it can apply in multiple settings. And so if you want to know whether you come to WCF or you go to another church or wherever, you want to know what a healthy church looks like, you really got to look at the leadership and look at what the qualities of these leaders are, are being demonstrated within them. So what I want to do is I want to read through the 13 verses, and then we're going to unpack them. And we're going to take a little side trip, and we're going to address a, um, a question that can be debated and is often debated is, should a woman hold a position of elder? And we're, going to, we're actually going to unpack that. So let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It says, It's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And this parenthetical, but if a man does not know how to manage his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church, so that he will not fall into a reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Now these men must also first be tested, and l- then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now women must like- likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, and good managers of their, ho- of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So what do we start with? We start with the fact that whenever we want somebody to to take a position of leadership, they always say what? Not me. Right? If you say, you want to be a... No, I can't do that. You want to take a position? I don't want to do that. It is a good thing. It is a good thing to take a position of leadership. Because as as members of the body of Christ, we are called to make disciples. And we are called to lead. And so he starts out, he says, it's a trustworthy statement. Literally, this is a faithful word, meaning you can count on this as a blessing. It's a noble honor to desire to be a biblical leader. Could you imagine what the church would be like if every Christ follower took up the mantle of biblical leadership? Now, I'm not talking about every, every Christ follower being an elder, but if they just took the role of biblical leadership in whatever context that they have in life, that would mean that you are seeking out the best spiritually for those people that are around you. Whether it was in the work or in home or in society or whatever the thing is, to be able to have these standards. So when we look through this list, you say, well, Carrie, I'm not an elder, so it doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes, it does. I'm not a deacon. It doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes, it does. Because to be a good biblical leader, these are characteristics that we should work on and strive for. And so Paul says it's a noble and honorable desire to be this biblical leader caring for the flock of God. 
And you should be caring for the flock of God. We need to be able to do that. Paul's going to rephrase this trustworthy statement five different times in these two letters. He'll do it in 1 Timothy 1.15, chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.9, 2 Timothy 2.11, and Titus 3.8. In other words, he wants, to, he wants Timothy to understand, and even Titus in the church, to understand that being a biblical leader is a good thing. And you say, well, you know, we should just get along. Well, what happens in the vacuum of leadership? If leadership goes away, what happens? It's chaos, right? When you remove good, strong leadership and biblical leadership, mind you, if you remove that, is the enemy not going to come in and fill that void? Absolutely he will. So as we walk through this, these are all things and these are all character traits that are visible, that can be seen. As he says in 3.10, these are things that can be tested and trusted. So it's a good thing. So the first thing he says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work that he desires to do. So that if he desires, it's a what's called a first class condition. In other words, it's a true statement. So if you have that desire, it's a good thing to desire. It's not necessarily a, that, a bad thing. And this this idea of aspiring means to be driven by passion. To see that there's a need there and to do it. Now, where does that come from? It comes from God. It comes from God opening the eyes of your understanding that there is a need and that need needs to be met. And you can do it in a number of different ways, either in the eldership or in the deacon position. But those are really the two functions within the church. There is not an elder, a deacon, and a bleacher section. You don't find that in the description here. There, 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 there's not the, you know, the, the elder, the deacon, the I'm behind the scenes person. You can be behind the scenes and still be a deacon. And doing that is we're going to see. But there really is only two classes of people. So my first challenge to you is, are you an elder or a deacon? And you're going, I don't know. I didn't get voted in. Well, we're going to see but uh, what that definition really looks like. And knowing most of you, and, and the ones online I can't see, so you guys are on your own. But a lot of you are doing deacon work even though you don't have the title deacon. And some of you are even doing elder work even though you don't have that title that is there. But it's the aspiration of meeting the need not the aspiration of the title within that. It's a strong drive to do that work. Why? Because what you want to do is you want to see the body grow. You want to see the body nurtured within that and within those functions. And so these overseers, as Paul starts out with, is this office of this overseer is important to understand that, that it's not self-appointed. It's God appointed. Again, Paul would write to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, when you look at that verse, who is the initiator of the office? It's who? The Holy Spirit. 
Now, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, the very people that Timothy's at, down in Miletus, and he's saying, look, the Holy Spirit gave you this job, and what is your job? Shepherd the flock. Which flock? The flock that Jesus died for. You are the caregiver as a spiritual overseer over those people that Jesus redeemed with his blood. That's a special job within the body of Christ to nurture in them and, and to do this. This, this leadership is, is by appointment of the Holy Spirit within this. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, in, in the giftings, as Paul would write to the church of Ephesus, same place where Timothy is, and he's writing to these offices, and he said, and, some, and he, being God, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor-teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the what? Body. Until when? We all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure and the stature of which belongs to the fullness of Christ. A diversity of functions, same spirit, different roles, ministering to the body, doing what? Discipleship. Discipleship. So the desire to see somebody grow in their faith is a good thing, isn't it? When you think about it, isn't it a good thing? You want people to grow in their faith. You want people to mature. And as you're getting older, you want to be able to have those people mature and duplicate yourself in them so they'll be ready for the next generation. To be able to hand it off. And so this overseer is doing the work of God serving on God's behalf. Now, if the overseer is doing the work of God and on God's behalf, then shouldn't the overseer have a character that honors God? Shouldn't, shouldn't that character be consistent with, with a good character and above reproach that brings honor to God and, and, and excellence? And that's what he's doing. The problem with Ephesus is the world was creeping in and the false teachers were creeping in. Compromise had come in. And morality was, was leaving the, the church and it was leaving room. As the morality was leaving the church, it was leaving room, creating a void for what? What would, what would come in if morality leaves? The opposite of morality would be what? Immorality. Would that be possible in the city of Ephesus for immorality to creep within the church once morality left? Oh, yeah, it was an immoral city to begin with. And, and the compromise. But the thing is, desire to do this is, is not enough. It really has to be the empowering of the Holy Spirit and to be self-disciplined, to mature. So in order to do that, you've got to work on you first. You've got to work on you and, and, and ask God, work on these things, mature me in these things, grow me up. Within this, And again, we're going to work down this list. And as we work through this list, maybe you take a note. Circle an area that God needs to work on in your life. Circle an area where you're finding yourself deficient. And then you can pray over that area and let God do that work. But before we get to that, I want to do what's called an excursus. It's, it's a side note. And answer the question, should women be ordained as elders? Now, Many of you would say from a traditional standpoint, you say, no, absolutely not. But if, you, if somebody asked you why, could you explain it? 
Some of you would say, yes, they should be. There's basically two camps that, that people have landed on this. One is called a complementarian position, where the woman, by, by her existence is there, is a complement to man. And then there's another position called the egalitarian position. The egalitarian position says that, that a woman is equal. And we're going to unpack both of them. But I really want you to understand what this is, because in our world, in our culture today, the, I'm self-editing, the office and position of spiritual leadership and biblical leadership has been so distorted and so manipulated and so contaminated in such a way from worldly views that it is completely unclear what a true biblical leader looks like. Anybody can declare themselves as a biblical leader in any way, shape, or form in all of these aspects within this. And so I really want you to understand that, first of all, I'm not bashing women. God is very clear in His Word about roles and gender roles within this. And as we walk through this, some of you might be a little offended or put off, and we can have a discussion later about it. Um, but understand, that from my study, and from what I understand God's Word is, this is I want to give it to you the way that, that I believe God's Word speaks it within this. So one of the things that we have to understand is, answering the question is, should women be ordained, is that this, especially in our day and age, Women's roles in society have been heavily debated, and much of that debate has crept within, into the church. And there's been a lot of statements that have been made by people that have caused great harm to women, especially arrogant, egotistical men that don't know the Word of God, that speak out in ignorance and say things that they never should say. In the same token, there have been many women that have declared their independence and, and their role and want to steamroll into that position of leadership, and they do so based off of a secular perception. And so my goal is to be able to walk through this so that we know when Paul talks about to Timothy, this is the position for the church leadership to set up in Ephesus. It is a timeless truth, even for us today. And, and within this... One of the things that I think has been horrible is a verse that has been taken completely out of context and misused, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34-35, where Paul writes to the church of Corinth, he says, The women are to keep silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject to themselves, just as the Lord also says, And if their desire is to learn anything, let them ask their own husband at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. In other words, this, word, this, this verse has been taken out of context within this, and men will say, you see, there it is. Women, you need to sit down, shut up, and know your place. Now, all you gals, how does that make you feel? The hair on the back of your neck is probably standing up going, oh my goodness, what's going on? Well, one of the problems that they were having in Corinth was the way that the church structure was, and as the teaching was going on and they were separated, they wanted to have this discussion disrupting the service. So Paul says, you can't do that. It'd be like all of you all starting to talk all at the same time while the teaching is going on. So we'll hang on to it. 
And talk to your husband at home and, and, and we'll deal with it that way, within this. But so many times, like this verse, people use what's called proof texting. They'll take a verse out of context and they use it to prove their point. But the problem is that, that when they take a verse out of context, context has got to be king. It's got to be in charge. And so it is true that, that there needs to be order within the church. But if this was true and women were abs- had absolutely no role in the church, that they were to sit down, be quiet, and know their place, then in that, women could not evangelize. Women could not disciple. Women couldn't teach. Women couldn't learn or, or ask any... And which flies in the face of the context of all the other things, including what we're going to talk about tonight, and even in Titus, when we take a look at this. So it's, it's really not true... And we find many godly women in the New Testament church that are doing many good things. So, the other thing that I think is important to understand, that Scripture is very clear as we take a look at this, and we take a look at this text, and, he said, and, and there's only two genders in 1 Timothy 3. What are the two genders that are in 1 Timothy 3? It's what? Men and women. Only two genders. How many genders did God create? Male, female, two. There are only two genders. There are not 23, there are not 34, there's not 105, or whatever you feel like you're going to be. There are only two. And so what we see in this text is that there are only two genders, and each gender has a specific, distinct role within the family, society, and within church, within this. And the Bible provides a balanced approach to the way those genders work together within that, to complement one another. But it's also very clear that male eldership is biblically grounded in shepherding the flock of God. So we start out with the first, Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and what? Female, he created them. So we start in Genesis and it tells us there's only two genders. Somebody wants to tell you there's more, take them back to Genesis 1. Take them back to Genesis 1. If any Christian says there's more than two genders, take them back to Genesis 1. There's only two. And we start with that that standard. And these genders were both created in the image of God, but uniquely different within this. And this sets up the complementarian role. It does not set up an egalitarian role. So if you're here tonight or you're watching online and you hold to the egalitarian role, you're going to have a hard time exegeting this out because it's not set up that way. God didn't set it up that way. Within this, the complementarian role basically states that women are created, that they were created second to assist or complement the man in his ministry and work. Spiritually equal, functionally different. The egalitarian rule basically states that women were created as equals to man. And this position holds that men and women are equal in all aspects without distinction. Now, logically, that doesn't work. And in the creation, it doesn't work. How do we know this? Question. What was man created from? Durst. Durst, dust. Dust. Dirt. So that makes men dirt clods. 
right? Okay. So, guys, you're all a dirt clod. You were made from dirt. What were women created from? They were created from the rib of man. That makes women prime rib. So we got dirt clogs and prime ribs. So already we already have two different origins. If you hold to an egalitarian position, they both would have had to have been created from the same substance. So even from the beginning, there's two different substances. And the creation priority. Man was created first. And man was given dominion first. Man was also given instruction first about the fruit of the tree first. And then in Genesis 2, it breaks it down into more distinctive. And then the woman was created from man, and she was created to assist man. They were created to complement one another, to be fruitful and multiply. Now, if it was an egalitarian creation, the man would not need the woman because he should have everything he needs. And the woman wouldn't need the man because she should have everything he needs. But the fact that the two are necessary to come together to complement one another fulfills the procreation command within this. But there's still, even in the creation model, a hierarchical structure within this. Two distinct people, two distinct difference with unique roles, with unique giftedness. And the men, even in the curse, have a specific role and the women would have a specific role. And as hard as anyone wants to change their appearance, it is completely impossible to change your DNA. You can change everything, but, but if you think about it, if you want to reject God, and you want to reject God's order, you have to work really hard, and you'll never completely change who you are. Because it's hard-coded in you, within this. And so people work really hard to do that, but they can't. So we have two distinct genders, two distinct roles. Second, God gave authority to man. And again, we have all that detailed information that, that was given. Raymond Ortland, who is a junior professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, explains it this way. He says, was Eve Adam's equal? Yes and no. She was his spiritual equal and suitable for him, but she was not his equal in that she was his helper. God did not create a man and a woman in an indifferential way. And their mere maleness and femaleness identify their respective roles. A man just by virtue of his manhood is called to lead for God. A woman just by virtue of her womanhood is called to help for God. Two different people. Same spiritually, equal spiritually, but, but uniquely different within this. And again, when man was placed in, he needed a helper. We get to the New Testament of this principle of headship. And this all fits into 1 Timothy 3. Paul gives three examples of headship. Now, headship is seen as authority. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, it says this, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So we have three different examples of hupotasso, or this headship, or authority. Now, as we see Paul laying this out, this divine authority was given from the Father to the Son, and then the Son is the head of man, and man is head of the woman. 
Now, question. Is the Father and the Son, are they equal? The answer is yes. Both God. 100%. Different roles. Different functions within this. No less quality, but different functions and roles. So qualitatively, we can see that God the Son and God the Father are equal, but different functions. The Father is the orchestrator, and the Son is the one that did the work, died to the cross, became incarnate within this. And so we see the same standard being set up for the uh, man and the woman, equal spiritually, but different roles within society, within the church, and, and within the home itself. So then we come into this idea of this overseer and this idea of ordination. Now, again, I'm really bummed in, in how society looks at ordination today. If you want to do a wedding, you can just go online and you can be ordained. If you want to start a church, you can just go online and you can start a church and you can be ordained. And there's nothing to it. Anybody can do it. Ordination by the IRS standard is one that... Um, you know, performs a religious service and you can get tax write-offs and all that stuff. And there are a lot of people that do it within that. And, and that's fine. But if we understand what the biblical idea of ordination is, it literally starts back in the Old Testament of consecration. Aaron the high priest and his sons were consecrated or ordained for the role of high priest by God within that. They were set up and they were ordained or set apart for a holy purpose. So when a, a spiritual overseer is ordained, it literally says that that individual is set up for a holy purpose as unto God. And can anybody be ordained? Well, I believe you can, as, again, as long as you meet the qualifications that Paul sets, because there is a high calling to that. The disciples, again, were somewhat ordained by Jesus. Were they perfect? No. Were they growing? Yeah, but they were ordained. They were set apart for a purpose. Paul and Barnabas, by the Holy Spirit, set apart for a purpose. And you say, well, Carrie, what does that mean? And again, it goes into this idea of deacons and elders and ordaining or selecting them and naming them for that purpose, separating unto God. And again, God is the one that ordains and God is the one that empowers. There's three titles that you are aware of, hopefully. If not, you'll know them that are used for elders and deacons and within church leadership. It's called church polity. So there's the diakonos, that's deacon. There is a presbyteros, that's elder. Episcopos, that's elder. So you'll know this because there's the deacons. And then have you ever heard the word presbytery? Presbyteros. Episcopalian comes from episcopos within this. Now, one is a deacon, and that's diakonos, but the other two, presbyteros and episcopos, they are both terms interchangeable as elders, but different functions. The presbyteros is the counselor and the shepherd of the congregation. The episcopos is the teacher of the doctrine. So if you were to, if you were to look at them and you really wanted to hammer it down, there are some elders that are great shepherds, great counselors, and then there are some elders that are great teachers. But if I took someone who was an episcopos and a great teacher, maybe he's not so good at counseling and caregiving and those kinds of things. But you can do that 
in the eldership within that. So not all elders have to be teaching elders. But within this, there is that role of caring for the body that is there. The other thing that I think is important to understand is both presbyteros and episcopos are strictly male offices. It is the male tense that is used. It is not the female tense that is used. And mostly older men. Diokonos, as we'll see in a moment, is male and female. Both. And we see it in Timothy's listing. So, I know I gave a lot to you and you guys feel like, okay, I was in seminary class. It's super important that you understand this because in our culture today, we see all kinds of things that are on. We see women as, as lead pastors and pastors and elders and, and, and all of this. And we see people of, of, of multiple genders holding the pastoral position or the eldership position. When you look at that, just understand that they're holding the position because they're not fully understanding what the Word of God says. And within that, pray that they would learn. Within that, they would, they would come to that knowledge. But for us, understand, women, you are special. Qualitatively, you are just as valuable, and in my mind, women are more valuable than men. We would, guys, would we be lost without women? Yes, we would. But within this, women, you've you got to understand that it's the man's responsibility to lead, to protect, to guide, and to take that role. And I apologize, women, for many of the men that are not doing that role. We need to step up our game, and hopefully by tonight, all our guys are going to step up their game quite a bit more. Women hold this subordinate role within leadership in their uniqueness. They pray, they prophesy, they evangelize, they disciple other women. Um, they use their gifts in, in such a way that men cannot do. And it doesn't demean who you are. And in many times, women have to step up into that role. Because the male advocated his position. And that's a sad thing. So guys, I'm hammering on you because you need to step it up. We need to call our men out and call our men up to that spiritual leadership. So you say, well, I don't feel qualified. Well, let's see if you are. We're going to jump through this list. And there's been a lot of, uh, of, of topics or a lot of books written on this. If you're one that reads, there's an old book by Gene Getz. And it's called Measure of a Man. If you have the opportunity to get that book, get that book. It is a phenomenal book. It's an easy read, and it goes through all of these. Gene Guest did a great, great job. We did it as a men's study years ago here, um, but it's really, really good. It's a great book to get and give to your sons, men, and sit down and go through that book with them. Um, there's also a really good book that Gene Guest wrote. It's called Measure of a Woman, and it actually walks through Proverbs 31. It's a companion book, and it's really good. I use it for marriage counseling sometimes. But well, what are the qualifications? Well, first of all, he says, if anyone aspires to be overseer, it's a fine thing. That overseer then must be above reproach. This is a general term. What does it mean to be above reproach? It means that you need to be Teflon. What does that mean? That means when somebody throws an accusation against you, it doesn't stick. It literally, above reproach means that there's no handle on you. Are there going to be people that accuse you of things? The answer is what? Absolutely, yes. 
accusations are going to fly. They even accused Jesus of what? Being a wine-bibber and a sinner and all these things. But did those accusations stick? No. But it didn't stop them from throwing them at them. When we understand the idea of being above reproach literally means to, leave, to live life without leaving room for blame. And, and within this, it's, it's this clean moral reputation in front of the congregation, in front of the community. Philippians 2.15 says, So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Men, there needs to be such a distinction in your life that there is a complete separation from you in the world. Above reproach. That means you have to check yourself, and what are you doing, and, and why are you doing it? First Peter three, fifteen to 16 says this, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you, to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence, keep a good conscience, so that the thing in which you were slandered, notice he says, the thing which you were slandered, those who revile you of good behavior in Christ Jesus are put to shame. They will slander you, but it needs to slide right off. Because there's no room for it to stick. And so we need to move to this character. Above reproach is a general overall character. Nothing sticks within that. Then he gets specific. And again, we're speaking to the men. Husband of one wife. That is strictly a male characteristic, is it not? It should be. It's the way it goes. Now, a lot of people really struggle with this. What does it mean to be a husband of one wife? We move from the general idea above reproach into the sexual and the immoral place. What does it mean to be a husband of one wife? There is so much debate over this, and there doesn't need to be within this. The phrase is literally three words. Myas, Gnoskos, Andre. Literally, one, wife or woman, man or husband. That's what it means. One, woman, man. One, wife, husband. That's the literal translation within that. And it's interesting because in Greek, the one wife is what's called the emphatic position. So it modifies the noun. So, it, so it's this husband or this man, but what about him? He is a, a, a one-wife husband or he's a one-woman man within this. There has been people that said, well, you know, what about an elder? Can an elder be divorced? Yes, he can. What, what does it really mean? It literally means that you are focused on one woman that you are not chasing after women. There, there is this view that some people would hold that all elders have to be married. Can you think of somebody who was an elder that wasn't married? That wrote two-thirds of the New Testament? That would be who? Paul. Now, if you hold to that, that fact, then Paul would be disqualified. Would he not? And Paul was married at one time. We know this because it was required to be a member of the Sanhedrin. Do we know what happened to his wife? Nope. We don't know if he was divorced, if she left him, or, or if she died. We just don't know within this. But we know the one thing that Paul is doing is 
is he's setting the character standard of a one-man woman. He's not addressing polygamy either. He's not saying, okay, guys, you've got to get rid of you know, wife number two, three, and four. That, that's, not what he, that's not what he's doing. But what he's doing, and the other thing is, he is uh, not really disqualifying widows or widowers that are in this, could be accepted in the service. It, in other words, you can only get married once and be one and done. So in other words, if you were a, a, a man and your wife died and you were a one-wife a one husband, that would mean that you couldn't get married again. And some people would take it to that. That's not what it says. It is always best in biblical interpretation to take the simplest interpretation. What is the simplest interpretation? A one-woman man. Be focused on one woman within this. So the elder that is above reproach is not a player. The elder that is above reproach is not a womanizer. Not chasing after all of these women within this. Within this he goes on and he says, now temperate. Now what is temperate? Nephalios is the word, and it literally means to be sober or self-controlled. The idea is to be sensible. So, in that, the elder needs to be sensible in his decisions. You're in charge of the body of Christ. You're in charge of other people's lives. You need to have good sense, common sense. Titus 2.2 says this, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and Love and perseverance. In other words, having a balanced judgment. Temperate. Not prone to rash behavior. Uh-oh. Does that mean if I have a temper problem, I can't be an elder? Yep. So what should I do? Deal with your temper problem. You cannot be an elder and have a temper problem. So you need to grow in that area. So that when people come at you, and I can tell you this as being an elder, they do. You have to be able to use your filter and not be, you know, volatile. It also, in your balanced judgment, you don't want to distort your judgment because of lack of thinking. So temperate. Prudent is the next one. What does it mean to be prudent? Much like temperate, it's exercising good judgment, but really this common sense. It's a practice of discretion. Looking at what's going on and saying, what is the best choice for this? Not the easiest choice. Not to be able to, to pass off problems, but able to handle problems. The disqualifier for this one is one who is driven by reckless speech. You say, well, Carrie, what does that mean? That means if I don't have a filter, then I can't be an elder? Yep. That's what I need to do. Work on your filter. Know what to say, when to say it, and know how to be silent. Know how to navigate relationships and words, prudence in your life, common sense, living balance. Another element that he talks about here, he says, temperate, prudent, respectable. Respectable is, is this idea of the prudent leader who is well-behaved, proper behavior, orderliness, worthy of respect of other people. One of the things that we do here is is if you know somebody that you think would be a good elder, you put them forward. You go to them and you say, hey, look it, you know, 
Joe, I think you would be a really good elder. I have great respect for you. You handle God's word. You do well in this. I think that you're, you're able to do this. I have great respect for you. But what kind of elder would, would an elder be if the congregation or the people that he's with have no respect for him? Would he be able to lead? No. No, he wouldn't within them. And so it's really this idea of a good reputation. And it's important to understand a good reputation both on the outside of the church and the inside of the church. What do people say about you? The disqualifier for this is one who's lost respect, both either in the church or in the community within this. And, and a lot of people, they try to gain respect through this authoritarian role. You will respect me because you fear me. Does that work? No. To be respectful. Hospitable. This is a great one. An elder needs to be hospitable. Hospitality is the foundation of the Near East culture of love. When you go to the Near East, hospitality is huge. When we travel anywhere, really, even when we go to Africa or anywhere, people will bend over backwards. They will give you the best food. They will give you their bed. They will give you the best. Why? Because it demonstrates love. Hospitality is at the foundation of the Christian faith. This agape love, seeing the best for other people. And so the, the elder needs to be one that has hospitality. Why? Because they seek out the least and the lost and the marginalized within this. They love the stranger. 1 Peter 4.9 says this, Be hospitable to one another. Note, without what? Complaint. Complaint. There are some people that have great hospitality, much, much more so than I do. And I, just, I just love that within them. But the elder needs to be able to literally open up his house. If you were an elder of a congregation, you say, well, you know, I don't ever want anybody to come over to my house. That's my private area. That's my bubble. That's my sanctuary. You're not allowed in. No. Then you need to do something else. Because that's really about you and you're making it about you. It's about housing the stranger and showing love as opportunities to evangelize. And so the one that shuts off hospitality should not be in that role eldership. They need to learn what love is. First John 3.17 says this, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and note, closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see somebody in need, you're driven to go meet that need. If you see somebody in need and you just blow by it, well, maybe you're not going to be a good elder. You need to have that heart that breaks. Then we come to able to teach. Leaders are teachers. Leaders are teachers because they're there to make disciples and fulfill the commission. In Ephesians 4.11 Again, the spiritual gift. He says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some note. Pastor teachers, that's one word. The idea is the pastor teacher. You're here to teach. If you're going to lead, you want to teach. All elders should be able to make disciples. All elders should be able to teach the Word of God. But question, what is required in order to be able to teach the Word of God? You need to know what? You need to know the Word of God. Good job. 
So you need to be a student of the Word of God to be a teacher of the Word of God. You say, well, I don't know enough of the Word of God. How much of the Word of God do you need to know to teach? You need all of it? You need a seminary degree? No, you don't. You don't. I can tell you this. You want to grow spiritually? The best way to know to grow spiritually? Teach others. I have a young man I've been discipling for probably the last four months or five months. And we've walked through the basics of discipleship. Tomorrow his assignment is he is putting together a Bible study to teach me one-on-one. I gave him the passage and I said, you're going to teach me tomorrow. He talked to me this morning. He says, carry on. I, I don't know. I don't know that I can do it. Bring what you got and we're going to work through it. Because that is discipleship. No one's perfect out of the gate. Everybody is growing, including myself. But when you learn the Word of God, the best way to grow is give it away. Study and, and grow by it. Elders should be able to make disciples and, and, and proclaim the Word of God, even if it's just one-on-one, and to teach other disciples that are there. And so you need to know the Word of God. You need to be ready to train others and the ability to communicate. But if you don't know the Word of God, it's not there. Now we come to another hot topic. And again, this is just a bullet point list that he gave to Timothy. Timothy would have an idea of this, but I want to unpack it. It says, not addicted to wine. Well, what does that mean, Carrie? Does that mean that I can't drink? Elders can't drink. Well, one of the things that we've got to come back is, Whenever you want to find out where you're going, go back to number one, above reproach. How you handle alcohol has to be done in such a way that you're above reproach. The elder has to be above reproach in their use of alcohol. This does not teach abstinence from alcohol. But it also doesn't teach freedom, that you get to do whatever you want to do. The phrase peroinen, per Oinon means that the person cannot be one who habitually drinks or drinks for the purpose of drunkenness. That's what the phrase literally means. Some translations will translate it as not lingering long over wine within this. It's not abstinence. But if you're preoccupied with drinking... Then, then you've got to work that out. shouldn't be an elder. If you're preoccupied when you drink to get drunk, probably shouldn't be an elder. Why? Because then you move from the realm of being above reproach. In our culture today, and even in the day of, of Paul's time, drunkenness was a problem. Alcohol creates a lot of problems. And while you can do it, should you? And is it the best thing within this? Drunkenness has ruined so many lives. While you can drink, when people are looking up to you, should you? And should you be careful? The disqualifier really is the one who, who is drinking. And I would say this in our day and age, because Paul probably didn't have it so much then. Any substance abuse that controls your life would disqualify you as an elder. Why? Because you're not above reproach. He goes on, and the, the not pugnacious goes with the drinking, because invariably with men, when you get alcohol involved, what usually happens? A fight. 
You become this other person. This idea of pugnacious is fighter. Not a person who has a bad temper or an irritable disposition. Not a hot-tempered person. And alcohol makes it worse. Pugnacious, the word pugnacious literally means to hit within this. So elders are to be peacemakers. And they're often put into high-stress situations. What happens... If you, are a, if you have a volatile personality, you're not going to do well. And there are some people that like to fight. You're really not going to do well. How do we know where you're at with your temper? I can ask your family. I can ask your family. How do you act when things go bad at home? The disqualifier would be an elder that suffers from this, these episodes of rage or lashes out. The shepherd of God's flock should never beat the sheep. Ever. Never. That's why the next one, gentle, comes in. And Paul contrasts the hot-tempered person with the model of the shepherd who's gentle, like Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. The idea of gentle, Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, The Lord is near. Gentle. So it's the opposite of the hot-tempered person, but the gentle one that is there. Which leads into peaceable. And Paul similarly calls the elders to be peacemakers. You are, as a spiritual leader, the one that should bring peace. Not create chaos. Should not seek to provoke strife. How do I know if somebody is a peacemaker? Versus one that causes drama. I should look at your Facebook page. If your Facebook page is nothing but a lot of poking the bear and starting arguments on Facebook, probably should rethink eldership and get a handle on this idea of of wanting to fight for the sake of fighting. In Ephesus, Timothy had all these false teachers that were doing one thing, starting fights. Endless debates over different things. And shouldn't be so. He goes on in, within this, and he says in Second Timothy 2.24, The Lord's bondservice must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. Moves on. Free from the love of money. Is greed a deal breaker for a spiritual leader? Yeah. If you want, if, if you want to make a lot of money, don't go into ministry. Just don't. Just don't go into ministry. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And as we read earlier, 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. In other words, don't do it for the money. Do it because of its calling within this. We've we got to understand that that elder has to be content with God's provision within that. One who manages his own household well. We've got a couple more and we'll finish this and then we'll do deacons next week. This is another sticky point. What does it mean, manage your household well? Well, remember, I told you, the general one is above reproach. Now, we look at these observable traits, and if you're looking for someone who is going to be a good spiritual leader, the home is a microcosm of the church and how that church is handled. And if he can't manage his household, he should not be a spiritual leader within the body of Christ. If you can't handle the two or three or four people that are in your own home, how are you going to handle the 
the 15, 20, or 100 within the church or the body of Christ. You're not going to be able to within this. And so there are questions. Managing your house, how does he handle the finances in his house? How does he manage his relationship with his wife? How does he manage his children? What kind of stewardship is he with the provisions? And so all of these things are there. If the house is managed well, then the church will be managed well and keep his children under subjection. Now, this is important because people get hung up again on this idea of, of children. This is children that are still in the home. And you say, okay, well, these are the little kids, and that's all there. Um, Titus would say in Titus 1.6, he says, Namely, if any man is above reproach, husband and one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dispensation or rebellion. Having and keeping are in present tense. The other thing that's important to understand is this. The word that is used for child there is technon. It is not little child. It's any offspring that still resides in the house. So if you are an elder and you've got a 23-year-old still living in your house, you're responsible for them. You're responsible for managing them. You're responsible for managing them if they're 5, 15, or 25. You are responsible for them. When they move out of your house, you are no longer responsible for them within that. And to see that that authority figure within this. Two more. Not a new convert. That word is neophutos. Literally means newly planted. You can't be an elder if you're just a born-again Christian. Can you? How could you lead if you don't know where you're going? So that is the third class that many people are in. They're in that growing stage where they're still learning and they can't be in that position of leaders. If you don't know the Word of God well enough, then get under an elder and learn it within that. And then the last general statement, the inclusio, is this, a good reputation in the community. Again, he brings it all together and he says, what does the community say about you? Ben Franklin once said this, it takes many good deeds to build a good reputation and only one bad one to lose it. It takes many good deeds to build a reputation, but only bad, one bad one to lose it. Think about how many pastors have lost their position within ministry, years and years of ministry, and had a moral failure or something, and fell. Abraham Lincoln said this, Character is like a tree, and reputation like its shadow. The shadow is what we think of it. The tree is the real thing. Within this, your character is what casts the shadow. What kind of shadow are you casting? We're going to pick this up on next week. I had hopes that we would get through it. We're not. So we're going to pick up on this and then we'll continue on in our study uh, through Timothy on how we should conduct ourselves. Chapter 4, or the rest of 3 and then 4, 16. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for these examples and the things that are there. Lord, I pray that with all this information that I gave, that it would resonate in the hearts of the people here and those that are watching online, that being a spiritual leader is a good thing. It's a high calling and it's a good thing, but you call us up. You call us to live our A game, not to to settle for complacency. And Lord, there is areas in, in all of us in these things that we need to work on. No one's perfect. 
But Father, there are people that are dying for lack of leadership. So Lord, may you raise up leaders. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your spirit that changes our lives. And we thank you for the gift of your son that's called us from darkness to light. We praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen.
joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.